so if you think about it, to me, trust is not, it's not something that we actively um, create. Trust is a byproduct of being radically honest through radical self-inquiry and then being brave. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. Authenticity is the alignment of head, mouth, heart, and feet, thinking, saying, feeling, and doing the same thing consistently. This builds trust, and followers love leaders they can trust. Lance Secretan. So many entrepreneurs seek to model their leadership after the high-profile, successful giants. Should I be a leader like Steve Jobs? How can I be more like Jeff Bezos? What should I be doing right now to be like Travis from Uber? These are not only questions without answers. They are the wrong questions. The real question is, who the fuck are you? You're not Steve Jobs. And you're not Jeff Bezos. You're you. And what does the leader within you look like? In today's conversation, Jerry is joined by Evgeny, co-founder and CEO of Makers Academy. Ev wrestles with the question of whether it's possible to scale an organization built around trust, or does success require a leader who governs by fear? Together, they discover a more beautiful, more fundamental question. Who's Evgeny? In that answer, they may find a personal path to alignment and more effective leadership. A quick reminder, as always, you can head over to reboot.io slash podcast you can find the full show notes from this conversation with Evgeny, including key quotes, links to Makers Academy and Evgeny on Twitter, as well as the transcript from the conversation. And I'd also encourage you to stay tuned to the end of this conversation, where we have a full eight-minute discussion from one of our Reboot Peers members, Bobby Brannigan. It's a great story that you don't want to miss. But now, a word from Ali about our boot camps. My name is Samira Rahantula, and I'm a co-founder of Innerspace. I would say it was really enlightening. It was really, really enjoyable. And we learned, well, I learned a lot. Albert Lee, the founder of All Tomorrows. It really changed my life. My name is Shar Genevieve, and I'm CEO of The Coterie. It was a really amazing experience. My name is Matt Ellis, and I'm the CEO and founder of Cloudability. This thing, if you're ready for it, it can really change your life and your career. And as a CEO, you owe it to your stakeholders, to your staff, to your investors, even to your customers, to be a better CEO, to take the step, get these four days, and I guarantee you will come out of it a better CEO. Join us for our upcoming Co-Founder Bootcamp, March 2nd through the 6th. Applications are due by January 31st. Learn more about this and our other 2016 bootcamp offerings, including our CEO bootcamp in Italy, at reboot.io slash bootcamps. Hey, Evgeny, how are you? It's good to see you again. Hello, Jerry. Yes, I'm fine, thank you, and it's amazing to see you. How are uh, you? I'm really well, thank you. Thank you for asking. It's a, it's a beautiful day here in Boulder, and um, I'm landed and grounded, and I feel really good. Hey, before we get started uh, too far, 
why don't you just take a moment and introduce yourself um, and tell us a little bit about the company and I guess even how we first met. Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Evgeny and I'm a co-founder of uh, Makers Academy, a coding bootcamp in London. We help complete beginners become professional software developers and get an awesome job. And we know we are doing a good job when our students, our alumni, describe their Makers Academy experience as uh, life-changing. Mm. Uh, we've, uh, uh, we first met, I think, yes, in February this year, uh, when I went to the CEO bootcamp in uh, Colorado. I came across uh, uh, one of your videos on YouTube pretty much by accident. I think someone tweeted it. Uh, it was uh, your talk at the Pioneers Festival uh, right. in uh, Vienna. Yeah, yeah. And I really, really enjoyed it. I felt like I could connect to you mm. strangely on uh, on uh, YouTube. And so I, uh, I've uh, Googled your name. I watched a few more videos. I found the website. Uh, and then I learned uh, that you're running boot camps for uh, CEOs. And, uh, uh, and I decided to apply. I went there. And it was a great experience. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I went to the CEO bootcamp in uh, February. Oh well, uh, thank you for for that, and thank you for coming. You, you know, you really made a difference at the camp because I thank remember you, you showing up with uh, such presence and authenticity. And you know, I remember too from that first uh, experience that that was the week where there was an opposition leader in in uh, Russia who had been killed. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I remember you feeling, because uh, obviously you were not born in the UK, and yep. I think you were born in Russia and mm-hmm. emigrated mm-hmm. to the UK and to London, yes. And you were feeling that that uh, you know the pain of that. Uh, yes, you're uh, you're absolutely right. I think it was uh, the second to last day of the boot camp. I've got a text uh, from my wife. Uh, who told me that one of the leading uh, opposition figures in uh, in Russia was uh, uh, shot uh, the right next to Kremlin, mm. uh, which which was in one on one hand it wasn't completely unexpected. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I I remember I I was uh, really really sad that it uh, happened because there is virtually no opposition in Russia anyway, mm-hmm. and the very very few people who who do stand up. Uh, uh, against uh, the regime, they uh, they uh, have to face the consequences, and they are often risking their lives. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think it's always worth noting that you know we all operate in a larger context. Uh, we operate in a world, and and there are, you know there's violence and there's all that. And I just wanted to just take a moment and acknowledge that 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 is true, and sort of out there. So <laughs> thank you, Jerry. Sure. So, you know, when we talked on email, you talked about some ideas about what you wanted to talk about today. And why don't you take us through a little bit of that? What, what, what's on your mind? Something about trust? Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, trust has been on my mind uh, a lot recently, let's say throughout the year. Mm-hmm. I, uh, so I've been, I've been running, the, I've been, uh, I founded the company three years ago and uh, I'm a first-time CEO. I don't really have too much experience, and I'm learning as I go, like all first-time CEOs do. And uh, and one of the questions that's been on my mind is, why are so many companies seem to be built on fear? Like the process is there. Uh, the process that we uh, normally expect uh, to see in companies, like the power hierarchies, so people 
firing others on on the spot uh, uh, processes de- designed specifically to prevent uh, uh, to prevent abuse. It feels like many companies operate uh, on the assumption that uh, their own employees can't be fully trusted, hmm. and this somehow didn't uh, uh, feel right to me. So, uh, for uh, so I guess for the last uh, year or so, my team and I have been exploring the question of what. Is it possible to lead uh, or to build a company in a different way? Why a young company, a startup, when there are just a couple of uh, founders and no one else, mm-hmm. is behaving according to very different rules? There is a lot of trust. There is a lot of alignment. Uh, a lot of stuff is getting done. And then as companies grow, they somehow become, they somehow become, or rather, they somehow become more fearful or so or uh so it seems and uh we've been trying to understand it and uh, change it and some things worked uh, amazingly well some of my uh, successes of the last uh, over the last couple of years can be attributed to uh, just trusting people more at the same time i'm i've got more questions uh, than answers is it really possible? Maybe what I'm trying to do is completely crazy and, and maybe there is a reason why the world or let's say high-performing companies operate in a certain way. Mm. So it's uh, so all these questions related to trust uh, have been on my mind uh, a lot. Mm. So, the, so the question you're really grappling with is, let me see if I've got it and I want to mirror it back to make sure I understand it. One of the things that you notice is that amongst your co-founders and that and that first team, there mm-hmm. was a high degree of trust. Extremely and, high. And the fear or the concern is that as the company grows, as it becomes more successful, that there's going to be a loss of that trust. And your question is, is in a sense, is it inevitable that as a company grows, um, is that loss uh, possible and it would be particularly painful for you, I imagine, because one of the things that you noticed, and I think you've made reference to this to me and other consequences, is that you found that when you leaned into being more trusting yourself, and as a result, were more trustworthy, right? That there's a correlation between being able to be trusted by others and therefore trusting others. Right, that uh, the company performance was better. Uh, in some respects, yes. It's not. Uh, it's not a silver bullet by any means, or it's not the only solution. But uh, some really good things that happened uh, can be attributed to, but uh, to trust, mm-hmm. to people working in situations where they really, really trusted uh, trusted each other. Mm. So. That's really helpful to distinguish. Tell me, tell me a story of when that has worked out well for you in the last few months. Um, okay, so one of in the last few months, I think. Uh, let me tell you a convers- conversation about um, uh, that I had with uh, my investor. Uh-huh. Uh, we uh, so. I've got an investor. We are the venture-backed company, and we've got the board, and uh, he's uh, he's on the board. 
and uh, our relationship has been uh, slowly improve, uh, improving over the last year, but it still wasn't as good as I as I wanted it to be. And uh, at some point, uh, we sat down and we had a very frank and open conversation about the trust or lack of trust that was uh, very, I think, fairly difficult for both of us. But at the same time, it was extremely helpful because uh, looking back, I think it was the turning point in our uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, uh, it's, I can't put a number in it, but in the, from my, in my subjective experience, uh, uh, our relationship became uh, significant, significantly better because, of, uh, because we just started trusting each other uh, uh, much, much more. Mm-hmm. And as a result, our board meetings uh, became uh, more productive and uh, a tiny bit less tense. And overall, uh, it, it changed for the better, I think, for both of us. Well, look, look, let me bring your attention to something. Rather than answering your question directly, I want to take you through what I think you already know to be true. So using that as, an, as a jumping off point, what was the first thing that you had to do to start that process? Do you recall? Well, the first thing... You mean thinking about the trust or that specific conversation? So, so if I remember correctly, what you said was uh, you've had this relationship with this investor mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It did not exhibit a lot of trust. Mm-hmm. And then you made a decision. Mm-hmm. And what did you decide to do? Do you... to be more uh, to be more open with uh, right. my with my feelings and my perception of um, uh, of the situation. Even uh, though you didn't feel that you could trust him, not entirely. Uh, at least uh, not entirely. But at the same time, it uh, it still felt like the right thing to do. It was it? Uh, it was a difficult conversation, but I think it uh, uh, it it was a good one. Yeah. So one of the core components of those difficult conversations, and you've seen me do this talk before. Mm-hmm. There's a, what I often refer to it as being fierce, right? not ferocious, being direct, is someone has to go first. And so I think you did, there was a few little micro steps. The first was you cut through the self-delusion, which was a a self-delusional state would be to blame him for everything. Well, that would be self-delusion. If anything, a lot of responsibility was mine. Right. So the first thing you had to do was be honest and direct and fierce with yourself, right? Which is painful because, right? You Mm -hmm. tell me, you just smiled Mm -hmm. and nodded, Mm -hmm. right? Because you had to acknowledge that you're not innocent. I'm not. Right. (laughs) And then Mm -hmm. you had to be brave. So first was a kind of honest acknowledgement and the second step was a bravery and the bravery was in naming the situation and putting words to it because again most people won't acknowledge their own complicitness in creating difficult relationships 
Yep. And the second thing is most people are not brave enough to name it and to speak it and to approach it. Because he could have just said, screw you, I'm not going to talk to you about this. Uh, easily, yep. And he didn't. So if you think about it, to me, trust is not, it's not something that we actively uh-huh. um, create. Trust is a byproduct uh-huh. of being radically honest uh-huh. through radical self-inquiry right. uh-huh. and then being brave. Yes. Right. Those are the necessary agreements. And then if you establish that, and in a sense, you begin to trust your own self. Uh-huh. Right. Wait a minute. Yep. I got this. I can do this. I can have this conversation. It's scary. It's difficult. And then but you lean ultim- into but it. But ultimately, it's the right thing to do. Well, I think the, the pain of it... Well, tell me about ultimately it's the right thing to do. How did you know it was the right thing to do? Uh, I mean, what's the alternative? There, uh, I, <laughs> I, I remember, I remember the boot camp. You, uh, the, you asked, uh, you asked us uh, a question. What needs to be said that is not being said? Yeah. And this question stayed in my mind. I, uh, I come back to it uh, again and again when I go through uh, through different challenges and. It's and yes, and, and so I was thinking, okay, what am I not saying? And then I realized that actually there are quite a few things that I'm not saying, and it will probably uh, be best if I uh, if I bring it uh, to the surface. Yeah, that's you know uh, that question is part of three questions that I taught myself to ask. What am I not saying that needs to be said? What am I saying that's not being heard? And what's being said that I'm not hearing? Three questions. Yep, three great questions. The first question was actually taught to me by my therapist in response to repeated and persistent migraines. I would have these migraines, and finally she would cut through it and say, well, what are you not saying that needs to be said? And when I started training myself, to say things that even though it's scary, even though it's difficult, the migraine started to abate. And Jerry, I so understand you because I've, I've seen the same. I realized that at some point I realized that trust is closely related to stress. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the reasons I went to, uh, to your boot camp is because I guess I was looking for more tools to figure out how to be less less stressed. When I, when I came to Colorado, I was not in my best shape uh, mentally. Yeah. And then I realized that uh, uh, actually asking these questions and uh, optimizing for trust, completely trying, trying to be more open, more vulnerable, more authentic, and trying to trust other people and the world in general more leads to a less stressful life. Mm-hmm. Because it enables hard conversations. It enables transparency. It enables... It, it lets me be, uh, be myself. It allows me to share, uh, to share and hear bad news uh, when it happens. It uh, lets me to receive and uh, deliver negative feedback uh, when there is an implicit trust that no one is going to retaliate, but instead we are just going to dis- discuss this problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, these things they really make my life 
slightly less uh, stressful, mm-hmm. which I guess, uh, as an entrepreneur, I really, really appreciate. Well, I, I, I appreciate your, your naming it that way. I want to point out that, you know, as we, I often talk about, we had this famous uh, formula we use in Reboot, which is practical skills plus radical self-inquiry plus shared experience equals enhanced leadership and greater resiliency. You just were speaking to the greater resiliency piece. I'm going to make an argument, too, that everything that you just described is a consequence of of that commitment to being clear, being fierce, results in you being a more effective leader. I I hope so. You would like to hope so. (laughs) Every every attribute that you talked Mm -hmm. about, transparent, clear, consistent, uh, trustworthy, trusting are all attributes of strong, effective leadership. And we know that because of the way people respond to that, right? They don't necessarily jump up and do whatever you tell them to do, but they, see, when, when you take the, uh, when you have the audacity to be yourself and create conditions in which you are allowed to be yourself, you inadvertently create the conditions for other people to be themselves. Uh, can I give Can I give you an example of exactly what you're describing? Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a team meeting uh, at the company, all hands, uh, uh, all hands meeting, and one and uh, uh, one person on the team said that uh, he's. I'm I'm quoting him. I'm terrified that we'll get significantly more students, mm-hmm. and to me. That was both scary and wonderful at the same time. It was scary because, oh my God, someone, most of the team are trying to grow the company and get more students. And somebody is terrifying of this prospect. But at the same time, I realized how beautiful this moment is because uh, this person was comfortable sharing this feeling, knowing that uh, instead of... uh, calling him crazy, the team would respond, oh, wow, why do you feel this way? What can we do about it? What's what's happening? And come into this situation with an uh, an open heart. And uh, uh, then we started discussing it. And uh, I I think we we got uh, much closer to the solution. But thinking back at this situation, I'm, I'm so grateful to him for saying that. Because otherwise, Otherwise, if I, if I or the team, if we were not aware of this problem, then part of the team would try to get more students. Part of the team would uh, try to, let's say, resist this effort. And everyone would be left wondering, oh, my God, what's, what's going on? Whereas, uh, whereas this situation was brought to the surface and uh, discussed uh, very, very uh, openly. Yeah, I, th- I, think it, I think it's a brilliant example of... of- the way authentic, trusting, trustworthy leadership creates the conditions for more effective uh, manifestation of the operational goals. So here you were, there was something magical that got created in that team where this colleague could speak to the politically incorrect fear that they had. Right, the counterintuitive fear is, oh my God, what if we actually are successful? Now the truth is, and coaches know this a lot of time, all over the place. 
Many, many people are just as afraid of success as they are of failure. Because of all sorts of complicated reasons. Uh And when we create conditions within an organization where we can't name that fear, you're absolutely right. It gets driven underground and it becomes an unconscious sabotaging uh, force within the organization. Whereas by surfacing it, you did two things. This example shows two things. One, the benefit of surfacing it is that you can speak to the product design process. You can speak to the UI process. You can speak to the user engagement process, acknowledging that there's this feeling. The second thing and more important thing, you noticed how the rest of the team responded. They rallied to that person. Right. And so there's something very special that occurred just because somebody said something really clear and direct. Uh That was beautiful. So what we've done is we've just sort of named some of the important components to it. I want to go back to your core question. Okay. And we're going to do a little coaching on this. So the core question is, in effect, how do I maintain this? Isn't it? Uh So what's your fear? My my fear is that it's not going to scale. My fear is that it works beautifully well when there are two co-founders. It works. It still works really well with a very the small early stage team. But as we grow from two to five to ten to twenty people and then more, how can we maintain it? How can we? What how can makes we maintain? you think you can't? Because trust built. Trust is built. Over time and uh, in face-to-face, uh, it's, it's built face-to-face through conversations, through shared experiences. And as uh, companies uh, grow, as, as as the team become uh, becomes bigger, it it becomes literally impossible to uh, maintain a very close, deep connection with uh, uh, everyone. Okay, so let's. So what you're asking, in a sense, is. How does the va- how do the values and vision of an organization uh-huh. get maintained uh-huh. when you can no longer rely on the personal transmission from co-founder or founder uh-huh. to the next level to the next level? Yep. Uh-huh. Right. Because really, again, I think trust is a byproduct of something else. It's a byproduct of the values. That you have. And one of the values that you're starting to identify and really name is the value is to be authentic. Yes. The value is to be real. Yes. The value is to lean into things that you're afraid of as well as things that you're happy about. The value is to speak directly and clearly, or in Jerry's parlance, speak fiercely, even though it's scary. And the consequence is, is trust, right? If that's the case, then the task becomes how does the CEO, whose one of their prime responsibilities is to embody the values, how does that, how do you maintain that as the team grows? It's a challenge. Because there's, a, there's an implicit fear here. And the implicit fear, and you named it earlier before, is that when you look at larger companies that are more successful financially than yours, what do you presume to be true about their trust within their organization? I presume that uh, the level of trust is uh, uh, lower. 
I see processes specifically designed in order to in order to work in situations of uh, of low trust. Uh, for the, for example, take um, let's say the take company spending. Mm-hmm. If you have two co-founders, there are no things uh, such as budgets. And then as the team grows, uh, somehow uh, somehow the team needs to decide okay how much money goes in which direction, uh, where are, where the limits are, and somehow it it feels like uh, the larger the company is become, the harder it is to trust every specific person to just use their best judgment to do what's right. And it's scary because that's exactly what I'm trying to do. One of the things I'm telling my team uh, uh, almost every week is that I want them to do what they believe is right and what is in the best interest of the team and uh, the company. Okay, so I think I think what my advice would be to not necessarily focus on the output as much as the, the levers that create the conditions that you're looking for in the first place. So for example, you can you can say, well look look at how trusting we are. We don't we don't have this budgetary process where the two co-founders are looking over each other. Okay. That's not the reason you trust each other. It's not uh, the no. lack of process. No, that's a consequence, yes. That's a consequence. Yes. And so the real reason you trust each other yes. is that you're real with each other. Yes. Right? Now, if you create conditions where all of the senior leadership start to embody the same kind of values, where they start to embody the value, for example, of going first, mm-hmm. right, the way you did with your investor, You will eventually need processes. You'll need expense reports. You'll need, you know, tracking mechanisms and planning mechanisms for sure. But you'll not need them because you don't trust each other. You'll not, you'll need them just for clarity's sake. Right? The real challenge is how do you personally hold on to the ability to continue to be real and authentic? modeling for the rest of the team that style of leadership. Even as the company succeeds. Yeah. Hold on to that one. Okay. So notice that one of the things that we're ending up with, who else in the company, aside from that employee, is afraid of getting more Students. Um, I think at least uh, at least uh, one or maybe two more people. How about you? Uh, to some extent, yes. Mm-hmm. The thing is, uh, the thing is, and I'm going back to trust. We are when we accept our students, we uh, only accept them if we believe that we can help them become great junior software developers. Mm-hmm. They, trust, they trust us to do it and uh, we don't take it lightly. And uh, accepting more student, students is one, or attracting more students is one thing, but actual delivering on the promise is another thing. Mm-hmm. So there is, uh, and yes, I know it's scary, but including for myself to think, okay, if we get 
the 500 more students uh, overnight starting in January, will we still be able to deliver on our promise as well as we've been doing it uh, last year? So and who else in the company is afraid of the company succeeding? Well, to... I wish everybody to, could see your face right now. Huh. Well, <laughs> please describe it. Well, I guess uh, uh, everyone to some extent. Yeah. Uh, because I worry we, about you. And 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 me too. Because it's uh, I really I really care about the uh, about the quality of uh, uh, what we do. Right. And and I do acknowledge and I do acknowledge this fear. We get more students, and uh, we still need to deliver uh, to deliver this great service. So th- th- this is my point of getting. The, the question is, how do we hold on to our values so that we remain the trusting and trustworthy environment that we are as we grow? But really, what it feels to me is that there's a deeper fear, which is what's going to happen to this company if we continue to succeed? There is. Yep. Yeah. So what are you afraid of as the company potentially succeeds? I'm afraid of uh, promising to lots of new students something that we will fail to deliver. Basically, and failing. What if you do that? I'll what if the company? Feel, did, yeah, go ahead. I'll, feel, I'll, I'll feel bad. I'll, I'll feel pretty horrible. And For why, why should you be horrible? There are plenty of big companies that overpromise and underdeliver. Why and, should you feel bad? And that's exactly I'm build, why I'm building a new company instead of working for uh, one of those big companies. I'm, for me, it's really, really, for me and for us as a company, it's really important to deliver on uh, the promise. Our work doesn't stop until our students uh, sign the contract. That's beautiful. What happens if you don't deliver on the promise? Name it. I guess I'll be really disappointed if, if not plainly ashamed of uh, failing, failing ah. to, to, to deliver. So the implicit in the potential growth isn't just the fact that the company is not going to be as trusting as it is now, but that you may find yourself over-promising and under-delivering, delivering. not delivering on the trust that students have placed in you. And this is really scary. Why is it so scary, Evgeny? I'm, I'm not, quite, I'm not quite sure. It's, I know, I, but I do, but I do know that I, if I promise something and then fail to deliver, I, emotionally, I will be in a pretty dark place. Yeah, I know and you will. Why? I. Why will you think poorly of yourself? Because I like to think of myself uh, as of a um, reliable person who delivers on what, uh, what I promised. Oh, that's the kind of leader you'd like to be. That's the kind of adult you'd like to be. That's the kind of man you'd like to be. Uh, yes. Okay, I'm not pointing it out to say that there's something wrong for it, but I'm I'm connecting it to a deeper existential and emotional holding that you have. Okay, now this is going to sound like a very strange non sequitur, 
Tell me again why you left Russia. I left Russia because I felt like I didn't fit in the society. What was it about the society that you did not fit in with? Uh, the values. What values? I felt like I couldn't be myself. And yes, being, being authentic, just saying what I think and being myself and trusting the society at large was, uh, was difficult. So I imagine that you lived in a society where people said one thing and did something else. Yep. It, yeah. Yes, it, it happens. And that is an awful place to live. It was, yes. And so, if we think about it for a moment, the fear, perhaps, the fear is that if you find yourself successful in terms of the numerical number of students, mm -hmm. but not successful in delivering and maintaining the same level of quality, and not being a trusting and trustworthy company, that you'll have fallen into being that kind of person back in Russia? Uh, yes, I think we are getting somewhere, Jerry. Mm -hmm. This is why it's so important to you. It was so important to you that you uprooted yourself and moved to a completely different country. This is existentially vital for you to live in an authentic way. That's what's at stake here. Uh, it was... Yes, I guess authenticity played, uh, uh, played, uh, uh, played a big role. Uh, I, uh, when, I, uh, when I moved to London uh, over nine years ago, it was... I guess it was an, an attempt to, uh, find the, uh, to find a new place that would be... I guess where where I would be more more authentic, more um, more myself, and I, uh, where I could find other people who uh, would allow themselves to be uh, more authentic. Mm -hmm. uh, even even the uh, even the uh, relatively simple things, for example, uh, the Russia is uh, not the friendly uh, not the friendliest place for uh, homosexual people. And even though I'm not homosexual, the, I'm I'm straight, but the, my my friends are, and it was kind of fairly, fairly difficult to live in a situation when I had to say one thing in one context and another thing in in another context. I just want I just wanted to be in society where everyone could be themselves, whoever they are. And uh, uh, yes, I guess trust and um, maybe not having to pretend that you are someone else. Uh, was a big part of it. So the inquiry was around how do I maintain trust in an environment? And yet where we've landed is, Jerry, I'm worried that the exterior of me isn't going to match the interior of me as we grow. And that the interior, the exterior of the company doesn't match the interior of the company. Right, because the consequence of when the interior and the exterior are in alignment is trust. Right, yes. the output is trust. Mm -hmm. So the fear is that you'll be in a place again, perhaps, where you're saying one thing in one situation and another thing in another situation. 
And when it happens, I find myself in a really difficult place emotionally. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, our mutual friend, Parker Palmer, whom you know through his writing, often says that his depression was always linked to when the interior and the exterior were crosswise with each other. Oh, yes. Yeah, you know that feeling. Yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're talking about, even though we're talking in a sort of theoretical way about trust, what we're really talking about is authenticity. Yep. Is, is this deep and profound desire to be Evgeny. Yep. All the time. Myself. All mm-hmm. the time. And not in conflict with it. So, what do you think of that? It uh, it certainly uh, it certainly certainly sounds uh, uh, sounds right. I uh, I it it strikes a chord. Right. So, if that's true, then let's get to your question. And your core question is: How do I maintain trust, a trustworthy and a trusting environment? as the company grows. Mm -hmm. When I look outside and I look at all these other companies, they Mm -hmm. don't seem to be trusting. Mm -hmm. Why did I just emphasize that? When I look outside, Mm -hmm. there's the answer, my friend. Stop looking outside. Look at myself. Amen. Right. If you really want to maintain the trusting environment that you've built, stay connected with that inner core of yourself. In effect, what I'm suggesting you do is stay vigilant, not about keeping the trust, but stay vigilant about being authentic. Uh, yes, I'm I'm trying to do my best, and it's at times it's difficult, but yes, but it's important. And what makes it difficult? Name those things. Fear. It always yeah. comes. It always. always. Uh, it always boils down to uh, to fear. When whenever I feel like there is lack of trust, I it's always accompanied by fear. Mm-hmm. Like what what's going to happen if I am myself? What's going to happen if? Um, if uh, I just say what I uh, say, what I think, or yeah, just name things as they are or share my feelings, share my uh, vulnerability. What, and, what was the name of the employee who mm-hmm. said that they were, they were terrified that they might get new students? Uh, Will. All right. Can you be as brave as Will? I'd, uh, I'd like to be. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm going to give this company, Makers Academy, a new mantra. And it'll make Will really happy. Okay. Be brave as well. Be as brave as well. Thank you, Jerry. Right? You see what I'm saying? Because, and, and in that sense, even though you're the CEO, you're holding the values, you're holding the vision, in that moment, when we say be as brave as Will, even though he was terrified, he was terrified to tell you that he was terrified. But he overcame that. In that moment, he was leading. Yep. Right? The way you're going to scale this is hold yourself first to the mission of where the inner and the outer map 
and then hold each other accountable to the same thing. Right? And have that conversation. Co-hold that within the organization. Everyone can hold on to that as a value. If you set your sights on the target of being real and authentic, you will, by default, create a trusting environment, even as you scale. I'm try, 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 trying to do my best. But, Jerry, I know it's scary. <laughs> it is scary. Yes. It is scary. I think you did something most people would be too afraid to do. And that is, you even spoke to an investor about that. Uh, well, it wasn't it wasn't easy, but as I said, it was it felt like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And as so, hold mm-hmm. on to that. Mm-hmm. Hold on to the right thing to do. How do you know? Where did you feel the right thing? Is it in your head? No, in my in my body, I just became more more relaxed. You, you feel it in your body when you connect with the quote right thing to do. Yeah. It lives in the body. I often think mm-hmm. of it in my stomach. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like that gut feeling. Oh, I hate this. Yeah. I have to do mm-hmm. this thing I don't want to do, but I know it's the right thing to do because my stomach is telling yeah. me it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Right? Yep. And if I can trust my stomach, trust my gut instinct, it's an expression of being authentic and true. And then all of a sudden, the relationship shifts. Not everybody will respond and meet you the way that investor did. Not everybody will respond and meet you the way Will did. But most people. And and also why, and on this note, what I find is that not just most people, but more people than, uh, than, I, than I expect. And why, I guess one of, the lessons I, uh, one of the lessons I learned here is that people in general tend to behave the way you expect them to behave. If I assume that others are, that everyone else is basically, that most people or all people are basically trustworthy and honest and reliable uh, for human beings then, and behave accordingly, then they tend to return the favor. Whereas if I, if I start the relationship by trying to uh, protect myself and minimize the damage that hasn't happened yet, then it's more likely that others will behave in a way that I expect them to behave. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, uh, I, I, I did have a few situations when I thought, oh my God, it's not going to end well. And I'm mm-hmm. trying to trust this person, but uh, they're probably going to just retaliate and, uh, uh, and uh, do something bad. And you know what? In more often than not, it doesn't happen. Right. It, uh, when I, when I trust people, I, Get more trust back than I than I than I expect. You just said it. You said it. Basically, a fundamental Buddhist teaching. When I trust people, I get more trust back than I expected. Absolutely right. Well, I want to thank you. This this was a wonderful conversation, and I appreciate the trust that you placed in me and being brave enough to come on, brave as as well to come on the show and and to talk about this. Um, I'm so admiring of your tenacity and your uh, desire to grow as a leader. It's really admirable, and it's a delight and it's a pleasure every time I can encounter you. So thank you. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Jerry. And it's been a pleasure talking to you as always. 
A Reboot Peer Group is a hand-selected group of entrepreneurs and leaders who meet in supportive, Reboot Coach-facilitated sessions twice a month. So what are peer groups really like? We asked a peer group member, Bobby Brannigan, to share his experience with Reboot Facilitator Andy Christinger. I thought we could start uh, with you introducing yourself and, and telling us a little bit about your company. Sure. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. My name is Bobby Brannigan. I'm co-founder and CEO at Mercado. Mercado is an online marketplace that connects consumers with their favorite specialty food shops. We're focused on building software that makes it easy for 100,000 plus independent specialty food shops in the United States to sell online and facilitate local and national delivery. My last company was Valor Books, which is an online marketplace for college textbooks where we connected millions of college students with bookstores and wholesalers and publishers nationwide. And I started that business out of my dorm room. I grew for 13 years. We never raised any money. And as you can imagine, I learned a lot of hard lessons along the way. And I ended up exiting Valor about a year ago. And I spent a lot of time reflecting on what went right, what went wrong. And one of the things that I realized was that I spent less than 1% of my time on things that really impacted the company positively. And my mission for my new business is to dial that number up by surrounding myself with great people and being more thoughtful than ever. Tell us a bit more about what are the challenges you're facing in your role as a founder? Sure. Um, You know, one of the biggest challenges that I've faced as an entrepreneur has been you know, navigating the waters of solving hard problems while under extreme stress. And, you know, that's been, you know, even harder when I was a first-time entrepreneur because, you know, you don't really have the experience and you really don't know what to expect. And, you know, you start a business, you have high hopes, you have big vision. And, but as with solving any hard problem, there are things that you just can't possibly predict or know. And, you know, the, the answers are not publicly available. So, you know, you try to, get the best advice that you can, but sometimes there's no one there to help. So you just have to go with your best logic. And um, for me, I faced lots of adversity at Valor. And the most intense stress that I endured was when I got sued by the four largest publishers in the country for $8 million. And, you know, that was at a time when we had been in business for about four years. We were $500,000 in debt. And, you know, that debt came from a home equity line in my parents' house. 250 grand in credit card debt and, you know, also some money that I borrowed from some scary people in Brooklyn. And, you know, nonetheless, failure was not an option. And at that point, you know, when you're in that kind of situation, you really don't have anybody you could turn to. And in my particular scenario, I didn't want to, you know, scare my employees away because I didn't want to let them know that, you know, we had this tense situation going on. And I didn't want to pass the stress on to my family because I didn't want to get them scared that they could possibly lose their house. And I also didn't want to share anything, you know, with, you know, friends from home because who knows what can get back to the scary people. So, and that would not turn out very good. So what I ended up doing is I internalized um, the stress and I fought the publishers for about 12 months until one day when I was driving home from work, I ended up blocking out and I woke up on the side of the road. You know, that was a really scary moment that I had, you know, where it was tons of stress. And, you know, you're doing it with a team, but it's hard to think with under clouded vision. And in that scenario, all in all, we ended up settling with the publishers and for a modest amount. And we convinced our insurance company to pay for it. And we, we got away from that one. 
but you know, it's pretty stressful for us. Bobby, I, I've heard you tell that story before, and it never ceases to amaze me how much stress you were under and how intense that time was for you. So it sounds to me like you've really learned how not to do things, how not to manage stress. And I'm curious, what has it been like this time around with a group of peers that you can trust uh, to bring that stress and those really hard problems to? Yeah, well, it's been pretty amazing so far. I mean, I wish I you know, would have had the group back then when I underwent all that stress. You know, but right now it's great to have that group available going forward because, you know, you can't, you can't be open and honest with everyone about your business, right? Because you don't want to scare people away. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to get people nervous because that's going to affect their ability to do what they have to do. At the same time, you know, there's not a lot of people that actually could relate to these situations. So having a group you could turn to is extremely beneficial and allows you, you know, not only to spend more time thinking about these issues and how to better solve them, but hearing yourself explain them out loud and getting people to, to question, um, you know, different routes that you might think about taking and, and that kind of stuff is invaluable. So it's, it's been really good so far. You know, one of the unique aspects of our, our peer groups is that uh, we have this ground rule of no, no fixing or saving and I wonder if you'd share a little bit about what it's been like to be grouped with other smart, driven entrepreneurs who are used to being problem solvers. What's it like to be together in a group where you're holding back that urge to fix each other and instead leading with inquiry, open, honest questions, and listening? Well, you know, it's been it's been a little bit hard, especially in the beginning, to not try to fix. Because as an entrepreneur, like you're just fixing stuff all day, you're just looking for problems to fix. So it's a natural instinct that you want to fix the problem. But what really helped me in going through the process is the the positive outcomes that I've had from people not trying to fix me. And you know, as we went through just these detailed conversations and you know, really getting deep into problems. What I found is that, you know, I form the best conclusions and the best outcomes when I come to it myself. And it's kind of strange. and I just don't know why the brain works that way. But, you know, when, when I hear myself say something out loud, it's very different than when somebody gives you some prescription and they say, you really need to do X. And it's happened to me several times with the peer group so far that have resulted in massive, massively positive outcomes for me. You know, one scenario in particular is that, you know, you start your business and you're under tons of stress, right? And there's lots of unknowns. And what I like to call them, you know, all these unknowns, I like to call them dark alleys. And lots of entrepreneurs are scared to walk down the dark alleys. They're scared to walk down this unknown to see what the unknown is. So they deny it, they deny it, they deny it, and it haunts them. And eventually that's one of the reasons why they potentially didn't succeed, right? Because they didn't. They didn't really pursue what was there and what could potentially be a big problem for them. So I've made it, you know, a strong focus of mine to focus on going down those dark alleys frequently. And in doing that, it could get, you know, pretty scary. I mean, you, you go down them and, and there's unknowns. You don't know what you're going to come back with, right? So, you know, having the group to support you along the way has been great because, you know, without that, your self-doubt can kind of, cripple you a bit. And if you, if you really don't listen to it, then you might just take on less 
you know, less new new risk because you've you've hit your threshold. Bobby, has anything surprised you about your time in a peer group? Yeah, I think um, the the thing that has surprised me most about being in the peer groups is just the value in hearing yourself answer these questions and, and, and how valuable it is to have the answers come out of your own mouth instead of people prescribing stuff to you. What's it been like to know you have your group there and that you're not alone? You know, it's been really great, I guess, um, you know, mostly because I feel I can take on more, more stress and more risk. And I've been able to solve problems faster, but also be more mindful in how to build a great organization. Because when I built my first company, it was really all about, you know, executing tasks and doing this and doing that, just getting shit done. And with my new company, I'm really focused on building a great organization. And, you know, like Jerry always says, building the machine that builds the machine. And, you know, it's, it's been great to have that group to really think in a much deeper sense with people that are sharing the same challenge. And they're really trying to grow and really get out of that comfort zone just as I am. That's been really excellent for me. So who do you turn to? What if you had a community of peers who are committed to supporting you in solving your greatest challenges? a group you knew you could always count on. There's great power in knowing you are not alone. Learn more about Reboot's peer groups and apply at reboot.io slash peers. So that's it for our conversation today. I know a lot was covered in this episode from links to books, to quotes, to images, so we went ahead and compiled all that and put it on our site at reboot.io slash podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can find out about that on our site as well. I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen. If you enjoyed the show and you want to get all the latest episodes as we release them, head over to iTunes and subscribe. And while you're there, it would be great if you could leave us a review, letting us know how the show affected you. So thank you again for listening, and I really look forward to future conversations together. 